Welcome, everyone. Thanks so much for coming along to uh, the sold-out session. Um, when the session was suggested by Sophie, uh, I have to say that I was a cynic uh, and thought no one will come, and uh, no one wants to, A, come along and hear journalists, let alone pay for them, even when there's a free glass of bubbly thrown in. So it's really, really gratifying to see so many people coming at 10 o'clock on a Saturday morning. Um, to this session. Um, thank you so much. Thanks so much to the Bookfest again um, for this amazing event that runs all weekend and to Spy Valley for hosting us here. It's an amazing venue that we've used every year and we love coming back here. So look, um, my name's Mike White. I'm a writer with North and South magazine. I began my uh, journalism career here in, in Marlborough 20 years ago at the Marlborough Express and it's lovely to be able to come back. And this morning we've got um, three of New Zealand's top long-form journalists, feature writer journalists, people that you know write longer stories, um, and we're really lucky to have them. Uh, we've got Charles Anderson, Naomi uh, Arnold, and Nikki McDonald. Charles and Naomi come from Nelson. Um, Naomi's a, an award-winning uh, freelance journalist who writes for New Zealand Geographic, Wilderness, uh, Fairfax, a spin-off. Uh, she's the author of World of Wearable Art, 30 Designers Tell Their Stories. She's had essays in uh, two collections of uh, Tell You What, Great New Zealand nonfiction. She's the founder of um, a website called Featured, which we're going to talk a little bit about later, uh, which collects great New Zealand long stories, uh, the best of New Zealand storytelling, essentially. Uh, she does book reviews for Radio New Zealand. You might have heard her at about... 20 to 11 on Catherine Ryan's show um, at 9 to noon in the morning. Um, and she's also the coordinator of the Nelson Book Fest, which is coming up in October this year, and I encourage anyone that's um, inspired by <laughs> this event to have a look at what's over the hill in October. Um, it, it's got a great lineup as well. Um, Charles Anderson's uh, works appeared in the International New York Times, The Guardian, Sydney Morning Herald, National Geographic Traveller. He's worked in Africa, Indonesia, East Timor, Thailand and India, covering everything from food crises to peacekeeping to sex trafficking and kickboxing. Um, and he's more recently uh, worked in Nelson for the Nelson Mail. Uh, he won the 2014 Canon Media Award for Innovation and Multimedia Storytelling. He's the Canon uh, Newspaper Feature Writer of the Year the year after. He's also been New Zealand's Travel Writer of the Year. Nicky McDonald on the far side is a senior feature writer with the Dominion Post in Wellington. Uh, she also began her journalism career here in Marlborough uh, at the Marlborough Express. Uh, she was recently named uh, the Canon uh, uh, Media Awards Feature Writer of the Year for the short form section. She's been uh, the Fairfax Feature Writer of the Year three times. She's worked overseas covering things like the Pakistan earthquake, the tsunami in Samoa, um, the Nepal earthquakes aftermath, and more recently here in New Zealand she's covered the quakes in uh, Christchurch and Kaikoura. Uh, and for the love of journalism, she's eaten hospital food for a week, puffed her way through a police <laughs> fitness test and reported from the inside of a nuclear reactor, the things we do as journalists. Ah. <laughs> Look, um, it's... It's often said that it's tough times in journalism, and I don't think anyone's shying away from that. And I guess the recent news about the reduction in publishing days at the Marlborough Express, the local paper here, and the Nelson Mail over in Nelson is a sign of that things aren't brilliant. And I have to say, personally, it's really, really sad for someone that worked a long time on the Marlborough Express and loved it, um, that it's down to three days a week. But uh, those are the kind of challenges, I guess, that are in front of... Uh, faced by media organisations nowadays. So it's really easy to get really gloomy about the state of journalism and the future of journalism. So what we need to do today is try and tell you that it's not all horrible and, and that there is a, uh, bright spots within it. And so I guess I just wanted to you know, get an idea from uh, the panellists here today whether they, how they see the, you know, the state of journalism, but particularly long-form journalism, feature writing, because in an age of clickbait and everyone's supposedly got shortening attention spans and, the, you know, uh, only able to read 140 characters at a time, it's, it, it, it would be nice to know that there's a, a, a still scope for a, a longer story, a, a well-written long feature. And so I guess with, I'd like to know from any of you guys, 
you know, is there still an appetite out there for longer stories, for feature stories, and is, still, is there still an ability for people to write them? Yeah, I mean, I think that more than ever there is. Newspapers have always, they're a tangible product which has a certain amount of space involved in it, and therefore writers are told, here's your word count, and you have to stick to that, and even if they want to get florid with their language and beautiful and eloquent, an editor will come in and slash it back to whatever will fit that space. But now, there is no, there is none of that restriction. And so what I've found working in newspapers as I've kind of tried to evolve into this digital world is that, you know, writers like to write, journalists like to write, and often a story is worth more than 500 words that you get given by an editor. So they'll write longer for uh, online space and they'll have to get cut back. So it's almost like the uh, websites have, have given an, a bit of breath to journalists who want to do more. Um, and in terms of the appetite for it, often those stories are the ones that people will engage with the most. It's kind of become more of a norm that to see a longer story than a shorter story online, I think, um, because uh, people spend time with it, and those are the ones that get shared around. People have a little bit of time to, to delve in and, and share it with their friends, and it's a bit more, a bit more meat on it rather than a little uh, short article that can kind of be digested and thrown away and, and on to the next one. Naomi, are you depressed by the state of journalism? <laughs> um, I have a really short attention span, so I can't blame <laughs> anyone for having one. But um, I actually think that we've gone through the clickbait period and we're coming to a anti-clickbait period now. I mean, we know that, you know, when the website, when websites first began, we know what people clicked on. It's all the sex, drugs, rock and roll. And in Nelson, it's cafe reviews and cafe, <laughs> new coffee and cafe things that pop up. That's, like, the number one. Um, but I think we've seen um, the destruction of the media landscape online and we are coming back towards um, wanting to save it now. So you've got, you know, there's a new science journalism fund that's um, just about to close, actually, um, promoting really good science stories. You've got the spin-off, which has um, just announced a dollar a word, which is an incredible rate um, for long-form investigative stories. Um, it seems like there's more of an energy and excitement about producing really good stuff because we've seen, you know, we've been through these sort of five to ten years of, of Kim Kardashian sort of type clickbait. And that's what we all click on because that's the highest in the rankings. But um, I think even private organisations and, um, you know, um, interested parties interested in the health of journalism have been um, interested in a revival of quality stuff. And is that because you think that the public is demanding that, or do you think they think, oh gosh, you know, uh, we, we, there's a bit of an obligation to look like we're, we're a vaguely responsible media yeah. organisation? I don't think the public. It's interesting that I mean, the public's depends on journalism, or depends on their politics, it depends on a, um, a lot of different, you know, personal aspects. You, I mean, if Nikki Hager comes out with an incredible book, half the people in New Zealand will say, oh, he's lying, or he's um, what was that? What did John Key call him? Um, a left, oh, a left-wing conspiracy left, theorist. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think, yeah. So, even if you do, Nicky Haggard is the best journalism in the country. Um, he lives on the smell of an oily rag, producing incredible quality stuff, and half of the people in New Zealand, or a significant percentage, are just going to write it off as nothing. So, mm. it depends on the audience, what what they think is true, what they want. Um, I think the fourth estate obviously still has a really important part to play in. Um, keeping the government accountable, mm. yeah. Nikki, you work for the Dominion Post, and in the time that you've been there, uh, you've seen the numbers of feature writers shrink quite a bit, to the point where you are uh, perhaps the only full-time uh, feature <laughs> writer who does, who's able to do investigative stuff Serious rather than stuff, other yeah. than cafe reviews and things like that. So, yes. I mean, can you explain what, kind of, uh, what the environment is there at Fairfax which is the, one of the main media companies in, in New Zealand that owns the Marlborough Express and the Nelson Mail and the Press. Um, can you explain what, you know, how much support and encouragement there is for feature writing for longer-form stories? Yeah, look, I mean, undoubtedly we have seen a, a massive decline in the num just the, the bare number of people doing it. But thus far, uh, I mean, those <laughs> the, the few of us left do get pretty good support. I mean, basically I'm an the extraordinarily privileged position of really being given the time and autonomy to do pretty much what I want. And uh, it really comes down to, you know, they'll, they'll <laughs> almost ask me what I'm doing and when I'm going to 
deliver it, which is um, pretty amazing in this um, day and age. So for, for, the, for those of us left at, at this point, th there is still pretty good support. And actually, I mean, it does, we do hear so much about kind of clickbait and, and short attention spans, but actually in the space in which we can measure it, which is obviously online in the digital space, long form stories still do well <laughs> as long as they get the promotion and the support. So, I mean, so much comes down to how they're um, not so much treated online, but obviously if you get any prominence, you know, in, if you get space on, the, on <laughs> Stuff's homepage, then obviously that's a window and people are going to see the story and then you can um, start to get some engagement. But if it's buried kind of at the back, in the, in the back of the um, hierarchy somewhere, th then that becomes a lot more difficult. So a lot depends, I guess, on the, the support that you get from those kind of stuff homepage editors and... What about the resources? I mean, just the physical resources to say take uh, two, three weeks to destroy, maybe travel, are they still there? Because often, you know, to write a long story, a feature story, it's not something you can just turn around in a day or two. It's not something you can just do over the phone. Um, so are those kind of resources still there, do you find? Well, travel's certainly been restricted, especially in the past few years. But um, having said that, you know, they are, th there is still money if you come up with something that, that really has promise and you can really uh, demonstrate that it's going to deliver a, a great story or something of um, importance. So if you, you know, if you can sell a good idea, there is still flexibility um, there. And as I say, for, for, for most reporters, no, there is not that time. But <laughs> so I, again, it's a, it's a privilege that is, um, that, that, that a few of us um, get and are very aware of that. Yeah. But for this kind of work, I think um, people gravitate towards it if you're in the industry you, you you sort of it requires an effort and a sort of um a bit of dedication that you don't come by in your day-to-day -day work so for me for example i've technically never been a feature writer employed as such i you know, i've always worked on stuff to you know uh, picking away at things over you know long periods of time sort of passion projects i guess and especially when you know you were younger you could justify that because you were trying to sort of you know figure figure the world out that you've um, landed in so people are going to gravitate towards that um, and in terms of the, um, the support and things, I mean, I've noticed, for example, Fairfax have putting, seem to be putting a lot more effort into showcasing longer, longer stories, like in terms of design yep. and that kind of thing, which is another, another um, important uh, part of this. Is that, there's a reason why people pick up magazines is because they look mm. wonderful and they're beautifully designed and they're laid out, um, but so often, um, especially in, only a couple of years ago, it was so horrible to read something long online as opposed to in a book yeah. because it was just a just look read of text yeah. and it was yeah. there was no kind of anything to break up your your um your attention span and and, and things to look at but now there's there actually is options to make things yeah. look nice online which i think makes a big difference people wanting to spend time on things and it's yeah. amazing what people will read i mean i had mm. i wrote a four thousand word story which is quite which is quite long for a print story um earlier this year based on a prison interview with a kind of charming con man um, and two people came to me the next day and said, oh my goodness, I, wrote, I read that whole thing on my phone. That mm. is and I'm thinking, <laughs> well, rather you than me, but wow, you know, <laughs> like that's, um, that's pretty cool. So if the, I, I always kind of think, well, people still read books, so the, people still have the attention span for a, for a, good, a really good yarn. Mm. Um, so it, it's just that, you know, they're not going to read it because you've stuck it in front of them on a, on a page of a paper and it's just there. So you've, you've got to sell it, I suppose. Mm. The design of the mobile, f the story on the mobile phone is so incredibly important to getting people just to keep scrolling. It just has mm. to be, you know, text. Yeah. That the best compliment is I read it all the way to the end. Yeah. That, that's, yeah. that's all. That's oh. the best. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, just, just so that we don't lapse into any kind of Juno speak, when we talk about the number of words, that's how we kind of, amongst ourselves, we, we gauge how long a story is. Just for reference, a story that you read in a newspaper might, you know, an, an average news story might be 300 words, maybe 500 words if you're really lucky. Um, the kind of stuff that we're talking about here, and we talk about this word long format, and I know Naomi really doesn't like this <laughs> word, but it's just what's talked about. It's feature writing. It's a long story, essentially. And that's kind of anything from maybe a 1,000 words on... Um, an average story in North and South that I work for, four or five thousand words. You know, the longest thing that I've 
bored people to death with was about 13,000 words, you know, halfway to a book. Uh, so that's the kind of range that we're talking about in these stories. So for someone to read 4,000 words on, a, on, a, on an iPhone is pretty good. Hey, Charles, you mentioned something uh, there, that stuff that you'd done before, um, you, you used the word passion projects. And it's something that I, I kind of uh, always think is important, that you have to be, to do justice to these stories, to a long story, you have to be really into them. And the first editor I had at North and South, a woman called Robin Langwell, man, she was scary, big red hair and fiery. And, um, she always said to me, you've got to be into your stories, you've got to really uh, be passionate about what you're doing, otherwise you'll do a rubbish job. And she'd sometimes ring me up and say, oh, what about doing this around this? I'm like, oh, yeah, it could be interesting. And she said, no, you're not into it, obviously. You're not going to do it. You're not going to do a good job. That is great. So that means, essentially, that in all the time that I've been in North and South, I've been able to choose the stories that I do. Wow, well, actually. Um, so I just wonder from you guys, how important is that, is being able to choose your own stories and other stories that you are most passionate about, the ones that end up being the best stories in the end? Uh, yes. Um, I, I sort of think over the, like the last five or six years of my work, and yeah, they're the ones that have been in the boiler for a long time that you've thought about, um, <coughs> and then eventually you've got the time that you've you know ticked away at and, and pulled it together. And yeah, you have to you have to believe in the story long enough to get to the end of it. You know, you don't want to get really excited about an idea and then actually figure out halfway through it, oh, you know, now I've got to actually bloody finish this thing. Um, and, you know, and, and it shows, that kind of thing actually shows in the writing and, and, and the telling of it because, um, you know, if you are trying to engage a reader to read through even a thousand words these days to, you know, seven, eight thousand words is probably my longest one, you have to sell it and have to trust in it. If you can't believe in it, then how do you expect a reader to kind of get through the end of it? It's kind of selling, it's selling not only yourself short, but also the reader short. So it has to be something that you're totally into, for sure. Mm. Mm. Nikki, you get the chance pretty much to choose your own stories? That's where your yeah, stories mostly. come from? Yeah, mostly. I mean, occasionally I'll get asked to do stuff, and obviously even in the past, um, a lot more you'd ask to be asked to do something on a particular subject, and of course you do it, and of course you still try and do um, a good job of it. And sometimes you'll surprise yourself a story that you or an issue that you're not desperately into to, to start with then you kind of start getting into the research and, and, and find that you do really get interested in it but yeah I think definitely as Charles says you know journalists do have famously short attention spans so sometimes you do get halfway through a story and think oh why did I do this again so it's good if it was your idea because then there's, <laughs> there's no one to blame and so there's no excuses um, sorry, yeah. I, I remember I worked with Naomi for um, quite a few years and to her own detriment, she tried to put equal <laughs> amount of effort into every story that she was given across her desk. <laughs> so she'd spend, you know, hours and hours on, you know, a beautiful, great idea of like a story with gravitas and human emotion and drama, as she would for, you know, a story about a cafe owner who just... Cafes are really important to the Nelson. But my argument was that you can't put yourself into every story because you will just... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, leave and, yeah, and exactly. So, so yeah, there, uh, there's a there's a time emotion management when it comes to these things that you, you know you have to be able to just to shuffle things on and you have to be able to invest yourself in the right project. Yeah, you you I mean, Naomi, you're freelancing, mm. so you're sort of able to choose what you do and what you pitch to editors, yeah. or is it the other way around? Editors saying, "On this, on thousands yeah. on this." Um, I've just ticked over my third year freelancing anniversary, full-time, um, thank you. Um, when I first started, I was pitching to everybody, just, you know, hire me, hire me, how about this? And now it's actually, editors are now commissioning me to do stories they want, which is good and bad because I've managed to re build relationships with Wilderness and Geographic, New Zealand Geographic, which are publications <coughs> that I really enjoy writing about the outdoors and the environment. Um, so often what they'll say, can you write this? I'll say, yes, that would be great. But they still don't... Um, the pay rate is still difficult to justify with the hours. So um, I worked out, I had this really tricky um, um, calculation when I first started about how many hours I would have to spend to earn the New Zealand median wage. I think it was like 50,000 or something. And it was, it was probably like three days per thousand or 2,000 word story, uh, which is a you know, decent feature story to, to pay for Kiwis, to pay for KiwiSaver and you know, medical and um, my phone and internet and um, heat and things. So 
it is not they don't pay enough. They don't so how do you manage that? Do you set um, parameters and say, okay, well, this is the what I got? Because I had a friend who freelanced and, and she was absolutely just militant about that. Well, yeah, this is yeah. what I want to be paid for this story, so this is the amount of yeah. time that I'm going to spend on it. And Yeah, well, 50 cents per word has been the same rate since 1990, yeah. I think, mm. possibly earlier. Um, the job has got easier with the internet, but it is, it's not enough, yeah. So um, you, you just write as quick as possible, and luckily after five years of journalism, daily news journalism, I can write as quick as possible and um, just get it down, get it down mm. and get it good enough. And so as a freelancer, um, I do have passion projects that I work on for New Zealand Geographic. I will spend an inordinate amount of time on a 15,000-word story. I think it's on that bit of paper that um, was just so took so much time it was two yeah. tramping trips um and a lot of interviews and a lot of research and i i didn't even calculate the rate per hour for that but for everything else I, do, in the I just don't even want to yeah, know yeah yeah because yeah. it was more important than the money depressing. Yeah. but um for the rest because i'm my entire income is freelancing i've got 14 stories on at the moment so everything is it's not i think there's some phrase i used to repeat to myself all the time <laughs> done is better than good I think. Was, um, <laughs> so I, would, I, would ch I have a few during the year that I'm really, really into, and the rest of them is just, just yep. get it done, get it good, good yep. and then, yeah. Hey, um, you mentioned that the sheet um, that we put on everyone's seats, um, this was uh, just a, well, it's an idea that we thought people hear us jabbering on about good storytelling, good, good f stories. We each chose three stories that, uh, if you want to go home and Google them, they're fantastic story, uh, stories in our view. Um, and maybe, can I get each of you just to pick one of the stories that you've chosen and say why you think this works, what makes it a great feature? Because, I mean, of course it's subjective, you know, books are subjective, any writing's subjective, but I think most of us would agree that all these stories really stack up. Uh, Charles, uh, do you want me to remind you what you're doing? <laughs> you can go last, Charles. No. Uh, so, um, yeah, so just give people an idea why those stories that you chose, why they affected you, why they've stuck with you, and what worked about them. Nick, you can start. Yeah, well, mine are, are really quite different, and I am denied as to um, w what to choose. So the New Zealand one that I chose was... Um, uh, well, it, it, it's almost an essay, I suppose, by Vicky Anderson, who's a Christchurch press reporter. And it was written um, literally, I think, the night of the um, February 22nd <coughs> earthquake. And it's an extraordinary piece, not because it's some great investigation or because it's taken her three weeks or it's this incredible get, but it's just an amazing piece of writing. And I think that's because it was so raw and so visceral and just absolutely in the moment. And I think it was the single piece of writing um, that came out of that, of, of the quake, that really just summed up just how incredibly, uh, just the incredible impact that that had on the city and on, and on the people who were involved. So I think it was really just a, a beautiful piece of writing, but a, a, an incredibly kind of honest and powerful piece of writing that, that really brought home um, the impact of that event. And the other one that I chose was, yeah, The Falling Man, which was interesting for lots of reasons. Um, interesting as a starting point for, for a story, so that the genesis or the gem, uh, gem that that came from was just a single photo um, from the uh, Twin Towers. And you can see it's an incredibly powerful photo of, of a man um, who's jumped. And it's... Well, it's a beautiful piece of writing, but it's also interesting in that it's a, a fascinating inter investigation into trying to find out who, who this person was and what their kind of life story was. Um, but often, I guess, with investigative stories, you know, the journalist will do the investigation, <coughs> excuse me, and then kind of present their conclusions or, you know, pr present what they've found out, whereas this um, is interesting in the light of, I guess, the, the I don't know if, of the development of podcasts and it's a, a similar kind of narrative story storytelling in a sense to, to what we're starting to see there and that's um, that the writer actually takes you on that journey with them um, so you kind of become involved in that investigation and you see some of the process and, and you actually kind of see the dead ends that they go down and then um, begin again so it's interesting um, from, from the way that it's told in, in, a, 
um, just a slightly different approach to storytelling. And that's the that's Falling Man. I think is the most popular. It was published in Esquire. Yeah. It's the most mm. popular or most read story ever in the, in the in history amazing. of Esquire. Mm. And just one other point about the Vicky Anderson piece, which I really encourage people to read. She wrote that on the night of the earthquake, and she wrote it on a phone because mm. there was no power. So you just imagine that trying to write a long form piece on your phone. It's really amazing. Mm. And um, yeah, just another thing on that, she's. Um, I guess just to show that the emotion that's gone into it, she's never been able to read it since. Yeah. <coughs> Naomi. Yeah, I think Vicky Van Kennen for that, I think. Yes, I think she yeah. did. Yeah. Um, I chose my f New Zealand one was Amy Cronin, who's um, a friend, and I really adore her writing. She puts so much effort into mm. it. She cares so much, just to the point of driving herself crazy. Um, so that one was for the listener, and it was um, about those vans. What do you call them? Buses? Truck shops. Mm. Truck shops. Yeah, that... Um, go around usually low-income neighbourhoods and prey on um, low-income people. I mean, that's arguable, but it <coughs> seems, yeah, from her story, it was um, quite obvious that people were walking not really having much understanding of the terms they're entering into and then getting stung, um, you know, $400. It's like higher purchase kind yeah, of things. Yeah, yeah, but it's mm -hmm. outside your house. And, um, you know, if there's beautiful luxury goods in there that um, you can't have otherwise, it's very tempting and... Um, um, of course, why shouldn't they have beautiful luxury goods? But anyway, uh, she just did a really good job of... It wasn't something... I'd seen them, but it wasn't something I was aware of as you know, being quite devious in the way they infiltrated um, neighbourhoods. And she just had the best ending line, I think it was, that um, was just a really clear ringing bell of a, a final line, which is so important. Don't, don't tell them. I'm not going to. <laughs> in a good story, you have to go and read it. But um, yeah, I, I love Amy's work, and I really liked that one. Um, and I think she was a finalist in the Canon Awards with that one in her portfolio, so... Mm. Um, and the second one I chose was, I think it was a Pulitzer Prize winning story, um, mm. the really big one, and that was just a, I love science writing and science journalism, and that was just a fantastic um, human interest way to get into this enormous earthquake that's due to strike the um, west coast of the United States, and it will cause incredible destruction that nobody's ready for. And it was in the New Yorker, and it had such a massive impact. Um, no one had sort of, they didn't really know about it, they didn't know that these waves would be crashing you know, entire days driving inland and wiping out 300 schools and... Um, Basically um, the entire Pacific Northwest. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's going to be underwater and, yeah. and, and you know, breaking off and sailing out into the ocean. But um, it was just a fantastic example of getting really important science that wasn't widely known and communicating it to the general public and it had a huge impact. Um, and she's a, yeah, she's a brilliant writer, mm. yeah. I remember that piece that, that, that basically the entire first sort of quarter or half of it is mm. just placing you in this That's apocalyptic right, yeah. scenario where, okay, if this happens, this is what will happen. Yeah. Just very kind of matter-of-fact, uh, you know, schools will be shut down, da 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 da, da, da. And, But a huge amount of reporting goes yeah. into these kind of details, but basically went through the entire kind of, um, I guess, government scenario of what would happen if a huge natural disaster hit that amount of people at one time. Mm. Um, and it was just, it's, I think, it, most people, I think, commented on that saying it was absolutely terrifying, but what made it terrifying was this kind of just almost deadpan mm. kind of way of telling it, rather than like over-dramatising mm. oh, and that's shoving Debbie Yeah, it's the best way to tell um, stories mm. that are already incredibly dramatic, it's yeah. just as simply as possible. Let the, sto let the story tell itself. Yeah. Mm. Um, my story was one, um, when I was uh, just learning the craft, um, I kind of just read a lot of stuff and tried to figure out how to do some of the great stuff that I enjoyed reading. Um, and uh, this piece was uh, in Outside Magazine, which is kind of, I guess, uh, sort of an outdoors magazine in the States, which has fostered really good um, feature writing, uh, the, the um, movie The Perfect Storm, if you remember that from back. So that was originally an Outside Magazine article um, that was turned into a book. So they, that, that kind of adventure, um, yeah, um, action kind of stories, adventure journalism, that kind of idea. Um, this one was about a, a guy who was trying to dive to the deepest hole, I think, in the world. It was in South Africa, and um, it, it, basically no one had done it, and this guy's friend had gone down there and had died um, and on, tr on trying to get back up, and he, was, he became obsessed with trying to get back down that hole to, to retrieve his friend. And so the writer kind of just takes you there in this whole sort of, it's, you know, it's, it's sort of tragic idea of this guy trying to re retrieve his, his lost friend. But what I loved about it um, was that it hides all the reporting, you know, you d what, what I think with great feature writing is that you shouldn't feel like you're being told information that you think someone's found out, you mm -hmm. know, it sort of just washes over you. In the same way that a great novel is mm -hmm. is just, you just accept it and it just, it's you, 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 you absorb the story rather than the facts and the information in it. 
Um, and that's what I became quite obsessed with myself, is that how do you make a story feel like you're just uh, imbibing it, you know, without having to make any effort? And it was really um, all about how well you can report. And I think that's something that is often underappreciated <laughs> with feature writing, is that, oh, um, you know, and I'm sure you guys have come across this term, colour writing, which is kind of this, this idea that, uh, okay, you guys can write some nice words, can you go Flowering. off and experience something and, yeah. and write something, you know, a few hundred words, but something really, like, few nice words but what it kind of is dismissive of is that is actually to write nice words you have to get nice material to write the words off you don't make stuff up you have to go in and get details and uh, information and um, in my experience the best feature writers are the best reporters and often that's why you know people like yourself people like Nikki and Naomi have, have gravitated towards this kind of work is because uh, you know if you do great reporting there's only so much space to do to, to, to showcase it so inevitably it, it it, it, um, you want to have more space and, and, and more opportunity to kind of showcase the, the stuff that you've found out. So this is kind of like novelistic, is, is kind of the, the, the style that I'd um, describe, and that was it's kind of goes back to the, the American kind of style of, of long-form feature writing, which is, you know, how, how do you write a non-fiction true story? A, a, a non-fiction novel, I think, is what yeah. Truman Capote called it. But that, that kind of idea, using... using, using um, tools in the, no the novel writer's tool belt to create a real story that is true to what happened to the best of your ability. And that, this, this um, example is kind of great because it has all that, it has you know, human drama and tragedy and all that great stuff that you kind of latch onto as a, as a um, storyteller. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, it's just beautifully done. The other one is quite different. It's um, a, a story by uh, Becca Levin, who was a Christchurch Press feature writer again. They, they're, they're actually one of the only, uh, well, one of the, one of the sort of few outlets in the country that maintains, a, you know, about three feature writers, mm. I think, three or four, which is, you know, which is pretty good, and, and probably the biggest feature section in the country next to the Herald. Um, and it's about this, uh, a, a nobody, really, um, an old guy who was, uh, I think, probably, probably the story came out of um, a, probably a, brief on page three, which was, you know, um, a, a, a house fire and sort of suburban Christchurch and sort of the, one of the darker, more, you know, run-down neighbourhoods. Uh, a man was inside and, you know, he was found dead in the morning kind of thing. So Beck did the great thing, which was ask a question, which is, who was this person? You know, who was this nobody that no one seemed to care about? And basically traced him back to uh, his childhood and sort of followed his entire story. And it turned, you know, he was, you know, he was an alcoholic, kind of run down, I think, um, was mentally handicapped and, uh, and sort of traced his story about how does one become this person that ends up on page three mm -hmm. of the Christchurch Press after dying in a fire that no one cares about. Which I think in the end is one of these great ideas of like mm -hmm. how humans, you know, who, who are we? Who are these people? Everyone wants to know about different people in the world, especially ones who are different from us. But what she was, um, so brilliant able to do was kind of create that, that link between, you know, someone who's reading it in the paper and someone who's, who, you know, is so different but creates that human link that, um, that sort of uh, implores you to keep reading and learn about someone uh, from a different background. Um, but she has this, this great way with language back and it's sort of the way she talks as well. Um, I think even in the first line or two, like, you know, something like he's, he was, he was pickled in his own juices or something, because he, mm. he was basically mm. an alcoholic and, and um, you know, was on meth and all kinds of horrible stuff. But, you know, this kind of, it, f it feels almost mean when I say it like that, but the way she just, it's just, this is what it is, you know, this is, this is how he died mm. and, and, and we shouldn't sort of shy away from yeah. it. Yeah, Beck has a really deep sense of empathy and that comes across in all mm. her work. She's very connected to people and, mm. yeah. Yeah. Look, uh, a lot of the stories in, uh, on that list... Um, and I'm guilty of it, the, the, the international story. We each yeah, chose an international, uh, an international, a New Zealand and, and then one of our own stories. But, you know, the, the story that I chose, the international story, was uh, about a, a, a soldier killed in, in Iraq. And for me, it was one of those stories. I just finished it and I was, mm. you know... I come from Marlborough, I don't cry much, <laughs> uh, you know, at, but I was on the verge of tears, it was that powerful, and, but I was just blown away by the storytelling technique, and it's n not a, it, it, he, he starts at the very end when the soldier is buried and he's talked to everybody, the grave digger, the, the soldiers that fold the flag to put on the coffin, but he works his way back, it's totally the opposite to what you'd think, you'd think you'd start with this poor Marine getting killed in Iraq, and then 
you know, f trace the journey through. Does it exactly the opposite way, but it somehow works. And as one of the most uh, powerful pieces I've ever read, um, the second one is a, is a story about a boxer, uh, a, a, a journeyman boxer, a guy that gets pummeled usually, um, but ended up fighting Sonny Bill Williams. Um, and that's by a guy called Peter Malcaron, who unfortunately, because journalism doesn't pay, <laughs> has, had, has had to sell his soul and now work, oh, he was working for a <laughs> bank, you know, because he couldn't make ends meet. <clears throat> Sorry, I hope not too, too many people work for banks here. <clears throat> Banks are, banks are really great. Banks are really important. Uh, <laughs> I use banks myself. Uh, he's still writing, though. Yeah, he's, uh, occasionally. He's now working for a city council up in Napier, but because he, you know, he couldn't make ends meet as a freelance writer, which is a real shame because he's a brilliant writer. And this is a fantastic story that took him years to do, partly because Peter is hopeless at meeting <laughs> deadlines and just drifts and drifts. Mike doesn't like Peter. But, but it is, it just traces this guy's journey from, you know, I could have been a contender kind of guy through to someone just doing chump change fights and then ending up fighting Sonny Bill Williams. Beautiful story, beautiful writing. But look, the, the thing that comes across, if you, if, can I exhort you not to binge on this list <laughs> because there is a lot of death and a lot of depressing <laughs> stories kind of here. Just snack on them, okay. <laughs> and, and, but this is something that comes up. A lot of the greatest storytelling, a lot of the greatest feature stories involve really tragic stories and they can be pretty grim. Charles, you know, are we just drawn to this? Are we ghoulish, you know, journalists? Or is it just the nature of human drama that, they, that often makes the best stories? I don't know. I think you look at what you read generally, what you watch generally. Inevitably, it's about life and death and what else is there, right? Um, and that is where drama and humanity lives, is in those extreme moments in people's lives. Um, we have the luxury and the privilege of being able to explore to, to go in and immerse ourselves in these most poignant and difficult and tragic parts in people's lives. And it's hard not to get swept up in that. You know, not this is part of the kind of strange and curious and thing about journalists is that often we take it for granted that we just go in and we can ask people questions that no one would, in their right mind would ask without thinking they're going to get slapped in the face. But we have this kind of, uh, you know, calling card that we're able to go in and, and do this sort of work. So it's almost... Um, yeah, communicating that part of humanity to a wider audience, and, and, and I think, yeah, humanity kind of exists in those extreme moments of people's lives, and inevitably it's going to involve death. I mean, but some, you know, conversely, some of my favourite stories are also, you know, fun ones, funny ones about life, and um, unfortunately there's not that many on you, that list. You just no. didn't choose them. I didn't choose them because, I, you know, but, but they, they're out there. Um, and, I, yeah, so I just think it's where the drama is, and that's where stories are. Yep. Naomi, what do you reckon? Yeah, I was just um, thinking, <coughs> as Charles was talking about, how Tracy Neal, who was a reporter at the Nelson Mail, now Radio New Zealand um, reporter, said to me once, she was, I sat opposite her for five years, so we just, just absorb each other's emotions and stress and things, and she was tapping away on D-line and just said, you know, no one owes us anything. Just, um, <laughs> just know, they, they don't need to talk to us in, yeah. in relation to something. And I was like, oh, that's absolutely true. Like, nobody... Nobody wants to be the subject of a piece like that, you know. I mean, imagine, um, you know, the big subject knowing he was a, a, a figure of, you know, being turned into a, a character, you know. I mean, these are real people. It's really hard to actually pick out, to, to delineate a person in, in a piece of work. Um, and I was just sitting there thinking that um, even with, you know, non-fiction novel writing, you're still creating a story, you're still pulling out, you're still editorialising, you're pulling out bits that you think are newsworthy or... Um, create the narrative, and it's still uh, it's still a fiction, a layer of fiction on top of what's actually going on. And I've completely forgotten your original question. Was it? It was. You know, grim. Why death. was grim death? <laughs> thing, right. you know, um, yeah, the, they're the most important things that happen to us in our life, and they draw mm. out the biggest emotions. And love is also, you know, a massive important thing. We don't actually read that much about love stories. Well, great songs. a wonderful mm. story about a guy who. Um, he had, she used to get these very strange letter writers to her. She had yeah, a column in the, in yeah. the press, and the, you know, one of her, one of her um, letter writers sent her um, like a quilt with her name written on it. It just had a great <laughs> yeah. fan base. But what, but um, 
But one of them uh, was a guy who was talking about the, all, all the... Uh, he wrote a column about the bed that she oh, slept in. Oh, the life and beads. Yeah. And, 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 he, and he wrote yeah. this really long story. I wrote That's a life story talking about all the beds that he'd slept in, yeah, yeah. in his life. Yeah, yeah. 42 of them. And That's a that great was, story. That yeah. became, I guess, the vehicle for telling this guy's life story. It wasn't yeah. about, you know, the houses he'd lived in or the people he'd loved. Or yeah. It was about the beds his he'd slept in. Beard, and his childhood beard, his marriage beard, his elderly beard. Which is, okay, there's a nice sort of... No death. No one died in any of the beards. He was still alive when it finished, so, you know... Yeah, fabulous. Yeah. I have to admit, sometimes you know it can get a bit. If you do too much of this stuff, I, you know, have written quite a bit about murder, and and I remember I covered um, the <coughs> retrial of a guy, Mark Lundy, you know, convicted of killing his wife and and daughter, and that was a two-week trial in the High Court, and I'd done stories about this for years beforehand. At the end of that, I was so ground down, I needed something like I went straight up to Thai Happy and stood in a frozen paddock for three days watching the New Zealand sheepdog trials because I needed some well done, so, so yeah well look there's a lot of drama in sheepdog <laughs> yeah. trials I actually I really liked the story I wrote after that I, I thought it was quite a good one but you just do need a bit of light and shade do you find yeah. that Nick do you but actually that's true I mean that, that is a good point and maybe we miss the drama and the domestic you know, the, mm. the drama in those kind of small events, and we probably should do more, <coughs> excuse me, stories about that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, yeah but the things that yeah. people can really relate to, but there is still a mm. lot of life and a lot of um, d domestic drama mm. um, in that. that but I guess it's yeah. just that, um, you know, those kind of sad stories are, are more obvious in a way, um, and, and so they do tend to be what you gravitate towards. But it... Um, yeah, I mean, I do find it difficult with looking for pics for um, mm. for featured that when I go through my, I sort of, as I read stories during the week, I put them into um, a little archivist and carving system called Pocket. And when I kind of go through them at the end of the week and I'm thinking, you're always looking for light and shade, I always try not to mm. um, just have two depressing stories. Um, and it is all, it, yeah, it's always easier yeah. to find the but we, I dramatic story. I remember learning in high school about nar narrative structure and conflict is central to it, and you have to have conflict and then resolution, mm. and that's mm. just mm. Yeah. True. It's a good story. Well, one one of my favourite stories that I ever wrote was, um, it's, it was ostensibly about a comedian called Rose Matafeo, who now is quite famous, but back then um, was just sort of starting out. And I wrote about 3,000 words about her cat. Uh, I saw on Twitter that she had sort of had this huge sort of tragedy unfold in her life where her cat ran away and she was sort of imploring people and like sort of em emoting yeah. <laughs> out loud on, online about how sad she was and all the sort of things that were happening you know that she sent out flyers and she'd gone to go meet someone who said and I thought well, that's, that could be quite a cool little story about this comedian's cat and sort of what's his story his, his name was Bert, Bert Backercat <laughs> so that kind of inherently gave it a bit, a bit of um, bit of interest. So yeah, there's a lot of cat. But there were, yeah, but in the same way, there was drama. But it was it was light-hearted because yeah. it wasn't you know it wasn't the end of the world. But people do love their cats. Did I know. The cat but come back. The cat came back. Yeah. <laughs> Spoiler. <laughs> yeah. Happy ending. Uh, um, look, there, uh, in in the genre of long form writing, we often think that it's all about uh, investigative pieces, you know, and, and that take months and months. But there's another really strong uh, part of, of feature writing, which is the personally saying there's a lot, I don't know if there's a lot more of it happening or not, but Naomi, you've done quite a bit of this, the essay, yeah. the personal essay, which, you know, might include you, family members, whatever, but is, is that an area of feature writing that you think is growing or is really powerful or is really valid or, you know, yep. so talk about, talk um, about that. Yeah, the personal essay, um, so I guess that's telling a story in a way that, telling your own story that other you kind of hope other people will draw experiences from and relate to, um, maybe bringing in other elements, um, but I... I think with so the rise of social media, there's been a rise of interest in telling your own story. Um, I mean, there's always been personal essays. It's just perhaps they've been you know, branded as such these days. Um, I think it's been a really strong tradition in women's writing as well, and therefore probably um, not treated as important um, in the past. Um, I think with, with social media, Twitter, Facebook, we've seen... Um, um, people have come up out of the darkness and started telling their stories and other people have been forced to pay attention to them, the media in particular. Um, you know, I remember when I was uh, a journalist first discovering about um, gender fluidity and uh, changing gender identity and I was just 
say, you know, learning about pronouns. So someone who doesn't identify as a f um, man or a woman will use they or, or um, you know, um, <coughs> I've forgotten them all. <laughs> they, them and, yeah, my grandma's just gone out the window. But they, they don't use he, she, they use they and them. Um, and I was just like, I had never heard of this before. And um, so, but the social media has allowed people to demand respect in that way. And I think the personal essay is, um, has been an easily shared way of exploring that. You can share things. Um, people having these experiences can share experiences that someone has written about that are relevant to them. Other people learn about them. I think it's a really good way to learn about how other people look at the world, how they feel about the world. And um, is it scary putting yourself out there, though? Yeah, you both know, times I've written. Yeah, you're all the, times the door to your own life. Yeah, well, it, again, you're still a character, so you're still picking and choosing what you want people to see. <laughs> and even though if you might go back later and think, oh God, I really wouldn't have said that. But um, you're still creating a story, um, even if it is all true, you, you're still arra um, arranging the, the sections of the text to create you know, a flow and a narrative. So in a way, it's actually, it, it's completely true and it's not true at all because that, that's one facet that you've decided to tell. Mm. Um, so you, you almost hide behind that. I mean, I, I mean, I've put some incredibly personal things out there, but I, I just don't care. Like, I mean, maybe somebody will read it and see their own themselves in it and feel a sense of identity or connection with, with that situation, maybe feel better about their own terrible situation. Um, again, it's usually drama or conflict that the essay comes out of. Um, you wrote quite powerfully about your, your mother coming to, yeah. to live with you. Yeah. I mean, I'm yeah. wondering about, about your, your uh, I guess, the consequences of doing that within your own family. Yeah. How, uh, did that change anything or, do they, or, do they, or is there an understanding <laughs> that this is how it is? I'm, I'm, my daughter is a writer and yeah. this is what she's going to do. I used to write a column with the Nelson Mail um, for a few years and you would, the day before deadline, you would often just think, oh my God, and then draw on something that your sister had happened to your sister. And then my sister, I've got two sisters, so it was never clear which one. <laughs> I didn't name them. But my family, when my sister had a baby, <laughs> I went over to Australia to hang out with them. And Heather had a, t oh, I just said her name, but anyway, she had a terrible delivery experience. It was you know, quite full on. And then <laughs> I went in a bit later and um, she was holding the baby and it was all a beautiful baby scene, gorgeous baby. And she said, can you just not write about this, please? <laughs> But I did end up writing about it. Actually. <laughs> 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 That's That's nice sister. <laughs> I sent it to her, and she was like, oh, "Okay." But with my, yeah, with my mum, um, oh mum, she doesn't she doesn't really mind. She she's got a, a really good sense of humour. I was kind of taking the piss out of her, but um, she just yeah, it was quite full on. The story was, the story that I wrote was an essay for a competition. It was never meant to get published, but it ended up being in that book. <laughs> And they all gave their blessings. I sent it to them and said, um, look, I, I wrote this thing. I didn't expect it to get out. Um, I took out some chunks that weren't my story to tell. It was other members of the family. And everyone sort of okayed it, and then off it went. So that was very brave of them to share, to allow me to share that. But I guess I'm really lucky that they um, wanted to support me in that way. But... Um, yeah, you can really do some damage writing about your Yeah, because it does really present a lot of yeah, interesting does, ethical yeah. issues. Uh, yeah. Because it's kind of, and I guess the same, it's the same with memoir, but inevitably yeah. you think you're telling your story, but your story inevitably involves other people's stories. And it's only one truth, it's not the Yeah, truth. and there yeah. was a really interesting case that went to the press council um, earlier this year uh, where someone wrote about their um, grandmother and drew on l letters with... Um, the, between sort of love letters between the grandparents and um, so her grandmother was still alive but um, had dementia so her mother had power of attorney so she'd got permission f you know from the mother who had power of attorney and another sister um, but then another sister complained and said you know she would never have wanted this information out yeah. there and so it just became this really kind of fraught um, thing which yeah so it's it yeah you have to put your family first or you just mm. yeah you're gonna mm. end up with nothing no matter how good the story is mm. <laughs> hey the, the, we, we often think of feature writing in the traditional terms of long stories in a newspaper or in a magazine but increasingly there are other ways uh, to tell stories um charles you mentioned earlier uh about you know the lovely formatting now online of long stories uh, with beautiful photos embedded and and video, etc., etc. Um, another way, obviously, that's uh, becoming popular is the podcast, which, in a way, is a kind of a not a new thing. It's like an old radio serial that you used to hear, so it's not really anything new. But it's having a resurgence. Um, and it's in the news at the moment. There's obviously, uh, if you've seen it on stuff, a series called 
Black Hands, which is done by the Christchurch um, journalist Martin Van Bainen, works for the press, about the David Bain murders, and that's a 10-part audio series about those. So, Charles, you know, do you just want to talk about, and you're very involved in this kind of stuff, in this new way of storytelling. Do you want to tell us a, a little bit about, about that, but also, if you can, about stuff that you might be doing? Mm. Um, yeah, I, I guess it's as technologies kind of increase, it's it's just become more and more apparent that you have to take advantage of any avenue and uh, tool you have to be able to tell a great story. And you know, once upon a time that was just in a book and it was text, but there's so many other things that can do that now, and it doesn't even have to involve words necessarily. Um, and so, I mean, when I when I first started out, um, that that was pretty much it. it. Was just text with an occasional photo sort of put through it. Um, and then in America, there was a um, quite a big move to to replicate the idea of a magazine in an online format, like how would how how can you engage a, a reader from design and, and, and incorporate design into the storytelling? So it's not no longer just about the words you're reading; it's about the experience. Um, and so I tried to kind of replicate a lot of that into what I was doing at Fairfax, um, which was basically creating a bit of an immersive experience that you'd go onto a website and rather than just seeing text pop up, you'd see a whole thing come at you. So um, I wrote a story um, which was the first kind of of its kind in New Zealand, which was about a lost plane uh, that crashed uh, supposedly in Awarua, in Golden Bay. Um, and it was the first, uh, the first attempt at a trans-Tasman flight in 1927. And it was just basically telling the story about whether or not it exists out there in the bush. Um, but rather than just writing a straight story, I went back and got all the old um, newspaper articles from the time, and and they were available um, in their sort of raw format that you could kind of allow the viewer to, to almost look at your primary sources themselves, um, along with sort of video of, of, of uh, the search and rescue team out in the bush trying to find this thing. So it becomes more than just one avenue to tell a story, um, which can be, you know, distracting as well. So it's kind of this balance of how do you create a, a, a sort of a, a tightrope of where everything is in service of the story, where it's not just a lot of things being thrown at you. Um, when it comes to podcasts, yeah, I've just started reading this, uh, listening to Martin's uh, uh, series, and it's, you know, it does come down to great writing. And I, I made the comment to, to Mike last night, you know, I've known Martin for, for quite a few years and worked with him in Christchurch, and, and Mike certainly has in his um, but I think this is the, probably the best writing that I've ever seen him do, even though mm. I'm listening to it. Mm. Uh, he's totally immersed in his subject, and he's, you know, he covered um, the Bain retrial in 19, uh, 2009 um, and was working on a book uh, for a long time before that kind of fell over. So that became the basis for this podcast, that he's sort of just had got all this material that he's now just kind of, um, yeah, just mm. concentrating into this one product, um, and it, you just don't want to know the amount of time that he's put into it. But it's quite—it's quite an incredible thing, um, and I recommend you uh, checking it out mm. if you—if you just search it, Black Hands or, or Bane Podcast, probably. And interestingly, he, he took the book text and had to sort of turn it around mm. and completely redo it to get the podcast. So it's such a but different it's still writing. Yeah, ultimately, yeah. it comes down to really good writing and really good storytelling, um, and you know that's been downloaded five hundred and fifty thousand times. I think was the last number I saw. That kind of is really good. It shows to me that there's still an audience mm. out there for people that want to hear or read great stories. And it, so it does come down to storytelling. Um, multimedia stuff, Charles, again, that's, are we increasingly going to see stories told in different ways using the technology that's available? I, I, I think so. I think um, like we're only kind of just touching on what can be done. Um, I'm sort of... Funnily enough, moving away from, from what writing mm. of, of late and actually trying to figure out a bit more of this technology. So I'm working on a, a documentary at the moment uh, on the on uh, the housing crisis, for lack of a better term, around the country. And there's no writing per se, but it's all using sort of 360 degree video to allow the uh, the viewer to kind of be sit situated in a place and then uh, can scroll around and see where you are. Uh, interactive data graphics that are kind of um, you know so rather than looking at a graph, you can actually manipulate things on a, on a table to, to show how something might affect you personally. So it's all, it sounds like it's, it's a different area to feature writing or to, to storytelling, but it's actually, it's just putting the power more in the hands of the reader or the viewer. So rather than me telling you something or you sitting in front of a television and watching a, a normal documentary, it's more allowing you to control how you want to view um, the material, which is kind of a, it's switching that relationship up, which is quite fun and a bit daunting because it's so new, um, but the technologies are there to allow 
people to explore that kind of idea, which is quite interesting. Um, yeah. And in five to ten years, it's going to be VR, so mm. we're going to be walking. <laughs> we'll be out there. Uh, yeah, well, okay. yeah, yeah, New Zealand's a little bit far behind. But, so um, this is virtual, this virtual reality, reality where, where yeah. you use the same idea, but you can, you know, yeah. rather than come to Spy Valley and, and listen to a book festival, you could be at home what, with some goggles on, Looking around and seeing Mike on the on the on yeah, the. Yeah, but you're not going to get a bo uh, glass of bubbly, are you? <laughs> <laughs> it depends how well stocked your fridge is. So yeah, yeah. Um, but you could walk through the Bain home yeah. with this and 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 follow whatever pick things up. Look at it. You can hear audio. You can hear the, the screams. I don't know, but yeah. it's not far off. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, look, we're we're running um, towards the end of the session, but uh, there is a, a a few moments for questions. If people have got questions, there's three. Really great journalists here who, who uh, you know, use them if you can, ask them uh, questions. Rhonda. Any stories? <laughs> Nikki, you go. <laughs> Uh, the, the, about this. Yeah, the funny thing is, we you know we're driving um, here and, and talking about questions, and I said, well, look, the, the, the most common thing that I get asked when I say when I say I'm a journalist is where do you get your ideas, um, because people are fascinated, and I I don't know, I sort of tend to break them down into three sort of loose um, groups. <laughs> One is the story behind the story. Uh, so often there'll be something in the news, an event, something that's happened. Um, but you're just getting that very superficial veneer, and you think, well, what really went on there, or you know, what what, what actually was behind, you know, the the Big Eleven kind mm. of example, a little snippet of information, and and that just makes you think, oh, I wonder what that person's story was, or or, or what happened that f behind that. Um, the second one is kind of issue stories, so. And again, they'll often be prompted by maybe a series of news stories or, th or just things that um, are in the news and you start to think, you know, so a, a classic one is kind of water. So there's just been an accumulation of, well, this place, this beautiful running stream that we used to swim in has um, become this dried up creek or swamp or whatever. And you start to think, well, what's the bigger issue there? You know, what do we actually have to look at? why this is happening and and what we need to do about it um and the other one is just um personal things that are happening in your life and and uh because there's a good chance that um if, if something is an issue or of importance um to you that that it's also something that um other people are, are talking about or or interested in you know one that i um a, a couple of stories that i've done earlier this year have been on one level just really mundane um one was talking about um relationship property laws what happens when people um break up and and all the kind of legal fish hooks and and things that go on there and another one was about um about wills about adult children challenging wills so mm. um just really everyday things but because they're really everyday things they affect everybody um, so so we don't talk about them because they're so sort of they get exactly. They get yeah. a lot too. Mm. Those yeah, sort of exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because they're kind of actually relevant to people's yeah. people's lives. Mm. But yeah, yeah, certainly people do do give me tips and mm. emails, random yeah. emails. And go, oh, do you do you know about my brother who? I, I did it when I was in Christchurch, um, the guy, who was one of the last people living in the red zone. Um, he was a guy who was in his 70s, caring for his um, mentally handicapped son, and it was just. Um, you know, you just, oh, do you know about this guy? And it's like, oh, yeah. I'll just drive down there. And there he was just hanging out. And it's like this kind of little oasis am amongst the, the, the mm. desolation of the red zone. And he just doesn't care. Just to, you know. So that kind of stuff certainly does happen. Um, but I mean, the famous story behind um, In Cold Blood, New York Times brief, uh, this family that was murdered in sort of rural America. And it was turned into, you know, um, one of those, but that's sort of the mm. starting point for most um, mm. feature writers in the world. Mm. Um, if you haven't read it in Cold Blood, yes, but the, the, the sort of true crime uh, non-fiction novel, yeah. Mm. Naomi, do you have yeah. a muse that descends on you at two in the morning <laughs> and says, this would be a yeah, wonderful Yeah, I have story, a really long Naomi. list on my phone yeah. of ideas. I will never get around to them, but um, <laughs> one... I've stolen a few of those. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> one happened the other night where I was out for dinner with my friend and she's an audiologist at Nelson Hospital and she was telling me about some uh, unbelievable stats about um, the number of prisoners who have hearing difficulties, and it was 90% oh. or something unbelievable, and it's like, oh my God, like, how, what have these people gone through in their lives to, you know, through schooling, um, through employment, and then ended up where they are because they, they can't hear and possibly can't read or write, have much literacy. So 
Um, I'm going to go and spend a, a day with her in her audiology department with kids getting you know grommets and um, cochlear implants and um, pitch that to somebody. Yeah. <laughs> so there you go. Look out for it. Mm. <laughs> yeah. What about you, Mike? Oh, I get you know tips from a lot of people, and 99% of them are just nutters. And yeah. uh, so when you think, oh, you know, you must be really in the know, yeah. Um, <laughs> you, honestly, there's a lot of sifting that goes through. People do tell you that this make a great story, but after a while you learn what, A, is going to interest you. It's got to interest you, going back to what we talked about much earlier. It's got to interest you. You've got to be right into it and passionate about it. And... B, there's got to be, it's got to be something new that people haven't done before, um, but it's got to be true, and some of the stories that get pitched to you just don't work out, and you can waste a lot of time, actually, and you do waste a lot of time looking at stories, seeing whether they stack up, and then they just don't pan out. So that's frustrating, but that's just part of the game, yeah. Mm. Any other questions that people... Sorry, I was just wondering if I asked myself in the panel, passion about an idea or a concept is obviously shows through and is important. I'd just like to ask you if you've ever been that passionate about it, um, doing a story and then as you've investigated the story and investigated things, all of a sudden it's gone to a tangent and not in the direction that you might have expected it to and it's changed your complete perception about your passion for that story and you think, oh, it wasn't actually as I had passionately believed it was going to be. That's happened to you, yep. Mike. Hasn't Sorry? It? Hasn't it happened to you? Oh, it happens... Uh, it was fun... What were you thinking about? Um, I can't There's so many d different amazing ones you've done, but possibly... I can't remember. You, you tell it. Well, no, I, I mean, there are stories where uh, you go into them thinking you know where they're going to go, and they don't end up there. You, you, you know, and you do end up writing a story which is completely different to what you imagined you would. And sometimes uh, the people who you're writing about, they don't like that <laughs> in the end. But you've got to be honest and you've got to be true. Um, sometimes, yep, your energy does run out a little bit uh, midstream. But usually, usually I'll see a story through. Sometimes I have spent weeks and months looking at, you know, reading through files and case notes and thinking, this is going to be a great story, this is going to be a great story. I remember I'll, yeah, one case um, which I thought was really going to stack up, and like I say, I had boxes of files which I read through. But in the end, I thought, nah, you did it. Uh, and, you know, this was a guy who'd been convicted of something, and I just couldn't see any other way of telling that story and I certainly wasn't going to pretend that this guy was innocent just to make a good yarn. So, yeah, a lot of wasted time, um, but those things happen. Mm. Guys, any other you know, thoughts on that? Yeah, um, you, you have to be careful not to um, you know, indulge in confirmation bias where you see mm. what's already, you, you see what you think is there, or what you already think is there. Um, it's, yeah, I mean, journalists have opinions and... Um, approaches to things and you constantly have to be stepping back and saying, you know, am I actually seeing what is there or what I think is there or what I hope is there as well. Um, so you have to be really aware of your own influences on the story and um, yeah, that's something that's really important to yeah, you know, I mean, keep, I keep an I'm, eye on. If I'm doing an issue story, I, my starting point will normally be well, this is an interesting issue, I'm going to investigate it rather than, I mean I think every journalist's worst nightmare or most terrified moment is when an editor asks you to do a story which, you know, starts with a foregone conclusion. It's kind of like, well, that's not journalism. You know, my yeah. Fine, I can look at the issue. But, the, you know, the, the story should come out of that, that investigative process, not the starting point should, is, is not the conclusion. And the reader um, shouldn't be able to tell what side you're on. Yeah. Either, you know. mm. Yeah. Um, not quite like that, but uh, in terms of a story shifting and potentially making it better, um, I was in Thailand a couple of years ago doing... Uh, the, the story was, a, was a going to be about um, this New Zealand... Uh, Dunedin-based <coughs> kick, uh, Muay Thai kickboxer who had trained in Thailand for many, many years and had lived there and 
and then had gone away and he was coming back for his sort of final hurrah. So it was the, the story in my mind was, you know, this kind of journeyman kickboxer who was going back to Thailand for his final kind of bout before he kind of retires. And that was, we're going to follow him through the process and fo see his final fight. And then it just turned out that our timing was completely off and he wasn't going to be fighting, but we were already in Thailand. So what are we going to do? We've got three days of this guy and we haven't got the dramatic fight at the end of the, you know, we've got the, the Rocky standing over the guy. You know, that, that, that was what was in my mind. <laughs> But what it turned out was that the, the guy was like, well, okay, I'm not fighting, but come and look at my gym. Just see, see, see where I train. And it turns out the guy who runs the gym um, is a bank manager. But Muay Thai is so um, part of news, uh, uh, Thai culture and, and the way some of the rugby is uh, here, but it's sort of like seen as an out for so many of um, like children in poverty and that kind of thing. So this guy um, houses his gym at his, at his home and he has kids who come and basically board with him and train in the gym and live in the gym and do their schoolwork in the gym. So it became pretty apparent that actually this old white dude from New Zealand training in, uh, 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 um, in Thailand is not very interesting at all compared to watching these kids and telling their story that okay, they're in mosquito nets uh, in front of a television surrounded by punching bags, doing their homework on the boxing room gym, you know, basically tr as a means to get out of sort of extreme poverty that they found themselves in. So that can happen, which is very pleasing. The opposite can also happen, which is you talk about, which you've got this great idea and then nothing happens. Nothing. And yeah. it's like, okay, now, yeah. Mm. So, mm. Look, we have run over time. There, there will be time for questions if people um, have got more questions. Sorry to cut that short, but... Uh, Charles and, and Naomi and Nikki will be here, and I think Nikki's, uh, Naomi's got some books um, that she'll be able to sign at the back. Uh, Paper Plus is, is here, fantastic. Thank you so much for um, doing that, guys. Um, I just want to kind of finish on two things. Um, don't click on clickbait, because <laughs> the more you click on that crap, the less chance there is for really good storytelling to rise above and be seen. The more you click on clickbait, the more you're going to get of it. Um, and if you want to read really good stories, that's, it, often it's, they're hard to find. <coughs> and so part of what we've given you today, that sheet to take away, there's some really great stories there, but there's also um, a thing called Featured. Now, Featured was set up by Naomi about three years ago, which uh, is essentially... Um, a library of great New Zealand uh, features, uh, and every uh, and Nikki and I um, now do uh, deal with that. And every Monday we send you out an email which has two brilliant New Zealand features and then four international features. We know you're not going to read them all. <laughs> we know that no one's got time. Everyone's you know time poor, etc. But at least we've gone through and done the hard work and cure, you know and found these good stories put them in front of you, and if you do get time, can drag yourself away from clicking on crap on stuff and, and the Herald, then, you know, there are these really great stories to read. It's not all crap on stuff. No, or the Herald, no. no the Daily Mail. No, links. exactly. Yeah. Um, so there are these really good stories. Now, so the details are there on that sheet about Featured. Just go on there and sign up to it. And uh, we'll send you an email each week. It's and we'll three book giveaways as well. So there's yes. free books flying around the country. And yeah. there's, on the actual s website itself, there's all the stories that we've put up in the past. So there's just an... It's about 300 now. Yeah, oodles of yeah. great reading there. So look, if you could, that's one way of, um, of helping support decent journalism in New Zealand. And hopefully um, it'll ca be able to carry on and keep people like Nikki... Naomi, Charles, and me um, from having to take a job in a bank. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, everybody, for coming out today. <laughs>